All right, Genesis chapter 43 here this morning. Genesis chapter 43. Uh, if you were with us in Sunday school when we were going through uh, Proverbs chapter 16, uh, we were taking a very good look at the, at the sovereignty of God. Uh, what, is that, what does that look like? How does that, how does that play out in, in general circumstances and sometimes in very specific examples that we were look, looking at there this morning? Um, in many ways, if you were there in Sunday school and you're listening, uh, what you're going to hear in Genesis chapter 43 is, very, is remarkably similar. Uh, we are watching the, the sovereignty of God on display. Uh, we are watching it being worked out, being lived out uh, in these individuals' lives. Uh, between Joseph, uh, between his brothers, uh, even Jacob himself as he's back in the land and, and having to deal with issues. Uh, all of them, as we watch them all together, as we watch the way that they are interacting with one another, the way that they are changing and, and, and being developed, uh, we are looking at the sovereignty of God on display. And that's what we'll spend our time with looking at this morning, the sovereignty of God on display. Uh, when we talked last week, as I introduce chapter uh, 42, because we really begin the, the, the charade that's been going on now for, for the next couple chapters, uh, we mentioned that there were three major themes that are, that are present as you look at this at these series of, of chapters here. Uh, the first is reconciliation, uh, the second is providence, and the third is, is promise. Those are, the, those are the three main themes that you can, you can watch and observe. And, and those, they're like threads that are just kind of interwoven. They, they come together. They come back apart uh, in, in a beautiful design. Uh, but those are the three main threads as we look at these chapters. And as we look at chapter 43 today, those are the three themes that we will be looking at. As we watch the way those are continuing to develop as they are leading up to chapter 44, chapter 45, these are the themes that we are watching. And we're watching the way that they're developing. We're watching the way that they are, they are connecting together. When we left off in chapter 42... Uh, we, we kicked off this this series as we began to uh, to deal with um, the 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 effects the the after effects of this famine that is beginning to take place over the entire earth. Uh, the children of Israel, uh, Jacob and his sons, uh, they're still up in the land of Canaan at this time. Uh, Canaan is not uh, immune from the effects of this famine. As far as we can tell, the entire world is under feeling the effects of this famine at this point in time. And so Jacob and his family in Canaan, they feel the effects of this. Uh, they find themselves in the same situation that everyone else is in, which is needing to go and, and find food. And this is where they show up before Joseph for the first time in, in years upon years, in decades, the first time that they have seen Joseph, they end up before him. And this kicks off this series of events that we find ourselves uh, taking place in. Uh, we watch Joseph as he tries to interact with his brothers, and, and I, I suspect he didn't see this coming. Uh, maybe he thought this was a possibility, uh, maybe he's been wondering for some time what this is going to look like, uh, but, but they find themselves in front of him, uh, and unbeknownst to them, uh, they are there. As we left off in chapter 42, uh, Joseph has left them in, in a bit of a, a, an interesting situation, hasn't he? Uh, he's taken Simeon, uh, taken Simeon and stuck him in jail uh, basically as a hostage and has informed his brothers that if you intend to come back here and buy food, you're going to have to bring that younger brother. Right? He, he, is, he has presented this, uh, this charade of them being spies. Right? He has accused them of being spies, made a very firm message out of that. And if you're going to prove that you are not, in fact, spies, you're going to have to bring your younger brother down here. Uh, we know that that is not something that Jacob is interested in at all. Right? Jacob loves those two boys that, that Rachel bore to him and doesn't want to see Benjamin come down at all. And so when we come into chapter 43, we, we find ourselves really in a, in a very strong tension. Uh, we need for this family to eat, <laughs> and they're not going to be getting any food out of the land of Canaan. 
and we've got to get Benjamin down uh, to the land of Egypt, right? For those, uh, those are the two things that must exist, right? And, and, and there's going to be a tension that exists uh, as we watch uh, the way those work out. Uh, before we start looking in chapter 43, let's start with a word of prayer, and then we'll, uh, we'll dive into what the text has to say for us today. Father, we thank you again for, for Scripture, and we thank you for being able to see your hand. Uh, we thank you for being able to see your purposes, uh, and we thank you for being able to see your, your actions and, and what you're doing there. Uh, Father, the life of Joseph, uh, the life of his brothers, the life of Jacob uh, gives us a lot of opportunities to, to see what your sovereignty looks like, to, to see the way that it operates, uh, to see the plans uh, that you have in place, uh, to see your promises being not only made, but being fulfilled to those individuals. And Father, you do it in ways that are, that are beautiful. You do it in ways that bring about good. You do it in ways that bring about your glory and your honor. You do it in ways that are, that are providing for these individuals that you have made promises to. And Father, as we look at that, those are instructive for us. We should be learning from that. You are doing much the same in our lives. Maybe not with the same kind of specifics as, as these children of, of covenant that, that are present here. But Father, your actions, your providence, your sovereignty, your, your mercy, your grace are on display in our lives as well. And we would do well to slow down and take a look at it. We would do well to reflect on, on what it is that you are doing and to give you the praise and the glory. And so I pray this morning that, that Joseph's life, the situation that these brothers find themselves in here, uh, Father, causes us to pause and reflect, to think about you, to think about what you're doing for us, and to praise you appropriately. So give us, give us, give us grace for this this morning, uh, Father, to see this and to see it in our own lives as well. Uh, help me to think clearly and to speak clearly, Father, and I pray that we are edified here this morning as we look at this. Jesus, name I pray. Amen. So Genesis chapter 43, let me start reading in verses, verse 1. I'm going to read down to verse 15. Uh, we're going to be looking here at, at reconciliation, right? So we have these, these three themes. Uh, so let me, let me start off here by looking at reconciliation. So uh, Genesis chapter 43, verse 1. Now the famine was severe in the land. So it came about when they had finished eating the grain, which they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, go back, buy us a little food. Uh, Judah spoke to him, however, saying, The man solemnly warned us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you do not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You will not see my face unless your brother is with you. Then Israel said, Why did you, why did you treat me so badly by telling the man whether you still had another brother? But they said, The man questioned particularly about us and our relatives, saying, Is your father still alive? Have you another brother? So we answered his questions. Could we possibly know that he would say, bring your brother down? Judah said to his father Israel, send the land with me that we may arise and go, that we may live and not die, we as well as you and our little ones. I myself will be surety for him. If you, may, you may hold me responsible for him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame before you forever. For if we had not delayed, surely by now we could have been returned twice. Then their father Israel said to them, if it must be so, then do this. Take some of the best products of the land in your bags and carry them down to the man as a present. A little balm and a little honey, aromatic gum and myrrh, pistachio nuts and almonds. Take double the money in your hand and take back in your hand the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was a mistake. Take your brother also and arise, return to the man. And may God Almighty grant you compassion in the sight of the man that he will release to you your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. So the men took the present, 
And they took double the money in their hands and Benjamin, and they arose and went down to Egypt and stood before uh, Joseph. As, as we left off in chapter 42, uh, the brothers were warned very clearly by Joseph, you're not going to come back to the land, come back to the land of Egypt to buy grain unless you bring uh, your brother Benjamin with you. Uh, they know this. Uh, they relayed this to their father in, to a certain degree at, back in the end of chapter 42, but not as strongly as they will here in chapter 43. And again, we don't know whether that's the author simply adding a little variety in there. We don't know whether that's the brothers trying to soften the message the first time. After all, they did come back with all their money in their bags. Uh, these boys are interesting boys, so we don't know exactly what's going on here. Chapter 43, Judah will lay down very clearly what Joseph had said and very clearly how, how dangerous the situation is and how important it is that, that Benjamin goes down with them. When we look in verse 1 of chapter 43, we start to see the, the danger again that, uh, that, Judah, uh, that, pardon me, that Jacob and his, and his sons are in. Uh, verse 1, we are told the famine was severe in the land. Now, we know it was bad enough already that they had to go down to, to Egypt in chapter 42. But the fact that they're calling out that the famine is severe in the land indicates that things have, things have gotten progressively worse. Right. However bad things were in chapter 42, by the time we get to chapter 43, they are in fact worse than they were in chapter 42. It's hard to know exactly how much time we are talking about that is taking place in between all of these chapters. Um, from what we can tell in chapter 45, though, from, from Joseph's discussion there to his brothers, uh, there were five more years left of the famine. Uh, since there were supposed to be seven years of famine total, everything from chapter 42 to chapter 45 takes roughly two years. Okay? So there, there is some period of time, but it's hard to know exactly how much time is spent traveling back and forth, how long did it take for them to chew through whatever grain it is that they had gotten down in Egypt, uh, and, and, and how far are they gone. Right? It seems as if at this point is they've, they've made it fairly well through their stocks and there's not much left. Right? And this is what's prompting Jacob to, to look at his sons and say, uh, go down and get us some food. Uh, Jacob is kind of amusing to me in verse uh, 2, or at the end of verse 2 when he looks at his sons and he says, uh, go back and buy us a little food. Uh, right? it, it's amusing. It, it's as if he says, uh, just go down to the local grocery store and just get me something real quick. It, it looks as if it's a, a seemingly insignificant task, uh, which is funny because when you saw him in chapter 42, uh, behold, why are you staring at each other? Right? He, he seems to be an interesting individual to have a conversation with. This is the, the way that he is looking at things and, and, and phrasing things here. Right? So he tells his sons, you need to go down and get some food. Right? We, we've just about eaten up everything that we have. Uh, we, are, we are down to the, to the last little bit. You need to go get us some food. Uh, Judah, however, in verse 3, reminds him, you understand what this means, right? Uh, we talked about this a while back. We talked about this uh, when we came back from Egypt the first time. Uh, we, have to, we have to bring uh, Benjamin back down to Egypt. That is the only way uh, this is going to take place. Uh, Judah, uh, Judah seems at this point to kind of be the one that takes the lead. You'll notice here that it's not Reuben that's doing any of the talking at all. Up until this point, Reuben is largely seen as the leader. Reuben is the, is the oldest son. Uh, Reuben is the one that's, that's trying to offer whatever he can down in verse 37 of, of chapter 42. Right? Reuben is the one that you would, you would expect to be in this position. But instead, it's, it's Judah that's taking the lead on this. 
Um, in the natural order of things, uh, it should be Reuben and, and Simeon and Levi and then Judah. Judah is, is surprising that he is the one in this situation. Uh, but Reuben, due to his own, uh, I think his own ineptitude, uh, right? You look at that response that he gives in the end of chapter 42, right? Take, kill my grandsons, uh, right? If we, if, we can't bring, if we can't bring Benjamin back, that's utterly unhelpful, right? You're going you're gonna to get that guy off the scene about as soon as quick as you possibly can. Can, right? so, so Jacob is probably writing him off. Uh, Simeon is down in Egypt, so he's of absolutely no help at all. And Simeon and Levi together are, are quite a, a cruel team. Uh, and and, Ju- and J- uh, Jacob will call them out for that later on when he blesses his sons. And so I suspect that Simeon and Levi don't have a lot of currency either uh, when it comes to their father. And so this seems to leave us with Judah. Uh, Judah, Judah becomes the leader. Judah is the one that begins to, to gain preeminence uh, in this family. And that's kind of surprising, isn't it? Because we've seen enough out of Judah that, that Judah is not exactly a, a, a stellar individual, right? We saw what happened with Judah and Tamar. Uh, we saw what happened uh, when it came to selling Joseph. It was, it was Judah that looked and said, we should sell him to these Ishmaelites. That was, that was Judah that, that took that role. So Judah is an unusual person to be taking the lead here, uh, but he does take the lead. And, and begins to lay out the facts for what they are. We're going to have to take Benjamin down if we're going to get any more food. Uh, you'll notice there in verse uh, 6, uh, you see Israel, uh, or Jacob there, begins to complain a little bit, doesn't he? Uh, why did you treat me so badly? Uh, he, he makes this as if it's their son's fault, as if his sons had engineered this uh, to, to treat him badly. And they have to kind of defend themselves. No, we didn't, we didn't do this on purpose. That wasn't our goal. That's just the way this has played out. And you would think at some point, you look at the questions and the way that they word it. Um, the, um, verse 7, the man questioned particularly about us and our relatives saying, is your father still alive? Have you another brother? Uh, you think about the questions and the way that the brothers relate that to you. Don't you think they should have been thinking something about that? Why, why ask us these specific questions? Why, why lay it out like this? Uh, and, and we know that, that Judah was, uh, that Jake, uh, pardon me, that, that Joseph was laying it out like that because he's accusing him of being a spy and, and, is, and is searching and is, and is trying to, to figure out what is going on here. But even still, as a brother, as, as someone watching the situation, wouldn't you have questioned yourself as you're reciting this? Well, why did he ask us those questions anyway? Right? There's, there, there's several little things that occur in this chapter particularly that make you think, you really should have thought about that just a little bit, wouldn't you? But I suspect you're in the middle of the situation, right? You're, you're in the middle. It's hard to, to have that hindsight that takes a look and say, this is what's going on. But, uh, but the brothers nonetheless are, are, are in here and, and probably should have asked some of these things. Uh, Judah again takes the lead in verse 8. So Judah has laid it out uh, very clearly that, that we're going to have to take Benjamin down here. That's the only way this is going to work. And in verse 8 here, uh, Judah makes what is probably the most, uh, the biggest um, leadership move that he could possibly make at this point in time, besides prompting Judah, uh, besides prompting Jacob on terms of what needs to be done. In verse 8, send the lad with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, as me as well as you and our little ones. I myself will be surety for him. You may hold me responsible for him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame before you forever. Uh, Judah promises to become surety for Benjamin's life. Now, I don't know exactly what, it, what Judah thinks that's going to look like. All right, because there's only so many things that you could possibly control out of that. Uh, there's any number of things that could happen to someone on a trip like this. 
Right? These, are not, uh, these are not safe times. Uh, there could be bandits uh, that are along the way. Uh, there could be a, a disease or a pestilence that, that takes place along the way. Uh, there could be another wild animal, uh, right, that we saw with, quote-unquote, with, with, with Joseph. All right? There are plenty of things that could have gone wrong. And so I don't know exactly uh, what Judah thinks he is going to, how he's going to accomplish this or what this looks like. I think Judah simply knows that out of desperation, something has got to be done. And something has got to be done that can convince Jacob to send his son with him. And this is one of the points where you see the reconciliation beginning to to really begin to come into play. Uh, One of the things, the elements that have caused so much of the problems that we have seen so far has been Jacob's favoritism. Uh, He loved Joseph. Right? And this, this made the brothers jealous. Now, now, Joseph contributed to that situation. Joseph is the one telling these dreams. Now, Joseph is the one telling a bad report on his brothers. Joseph has contributed to this situation. Uh, but one of the primary factors is that Jacob loves Joseph. He loves these sons of Rachel. Right? Uh, he always loved Rachel more than he loved the rest of his wives. This has been well known from the very beginning. And if we're going to make some kind of reconciliation, if we're going to keep this family alive, one of the things that has to give is the favoritism of Jacob, right? And really, this situation, the way this entire narrative is is breaking, it is putting an awful lot of strain on Jacob and his favoritism. Will you hold to the favoritism that you have for Benjamin, or will you keep the rest of this family alive? Because that really is the decision that is coming down to. That that really is the point at which we are coming to. Either you send Benjamin down and we live, or you hold Benjamin back and you hold on to this favoritism. And as, as Judah says here, we're all going to die. And it's not just going to be you, and it's not just going to be the, your sons that you may not think very much of. It's going to be your grandsons. It's going to be everyone. This entire family is going to be wiped out, is going to die, unless you send Benjamin with us. So what's it going to be? Right, this is, and this really is where Judah takes Jacob to. Right? This, is, this is what has to happen. You're going to have to release Benjamin. You're going to have to give up on, on Benjamin here to a certain degree uh, if, we're going to, if we're going to make it. Uh, you'll notice there that he even uh, puts a little bit of a barb there in verse 10, does he not? Uh, for surely uh, we could have returned twice by now. <laughs> right, right. Uh, Judah is looking at the situation and he's saying, if you had simply sent Benjamin with us the first time or send him with us as soon as we had came back to you the report the first time, we wouldn't be in a tight spot right now. We could have made it to, to, to Egypt twice at this amount of time that we, have, that we have taken. So it tells me that whatever stock it is that they have laid up, they are really at the end of that stock. There really is not much left for them to, to eat on. They have, they have really consumed most all of it by this point in time. This is, going to move, this is going to move Jacob. Uh, Jacob, Jacob sees what, what Judah is, is laying out. Uh, Judah's leadership is effective. His speech is effective. Uh, he has made this point very, very well, and, and, and Judah understands it and, and sees what is going on there. Uh, he begins then to, to say, okay, this, this is going to have to take place. I'm going to have to lay down uh, this, uh, this favoritism that I have, and we're going to have to get something together. Uh, Jacob does, I think, what Jacob knows best. Uh, Jacob begins to think through, how can, I, how can I smooth over this situation? Right? And this is, I think this is an example, again, of that old schemer still, still at play there. He's done this with Esau once before, has he not? Right? You, you got a situation that's, that's kind of rough. What do you do? Well, you kind of grease the wheels a little bit there and kind of keep things moving. And how do you do that with a person? You give them a gift. 
Right? You give him a gift. And you see, this is exactly where he starts here in verse 11. This is, this is Jacob doing what Jacob knows best. How do, we, how do we smooth over this man in Egypt? We give him some stuff. They take what is considered to be the best of the land here at this point in time. So whatever this famine is, this seems to primarily be a famine of grain. Other, some other products seem to be okay at this point. Right? So he's, he's bringing down some honey. He's bringing down some, some aromatic gums, uh, some, some myrrh, some pistachio nuts, some almonds. Uh, that gum may be, may be coming from dates or, or some other kind of fruit that, that, is, that is there in the land. Those items are still present to some degree. There's, there's either enough store that is left over that he can pull from. These, these items would keep fairly well. Or there is some of that that is still coming in from the land. It's just not enough that you can keep people alive on. right? You wouldn't want to make a meal out of, out of these items. That's not going to fill anyone's belly up. And so Jacob begins to, to give those elements to his sons and say, you're going to take this down to them. You're going to take the best of the land. We're going, to, we're going to give him what Canaan is known for, and we're going to take this down to the man in addition to the money, and you're going to give this to him and smooth over uh, what the situation looks like. Uh, you'll notice that money doesn't seem to be an option. Doesn't seem to be much of an, uh, a problem either, right? Uh, he sends them down with double the, hand, double the money in their hand and make sure that they take the money that was in those bags to begin with. Right? Remember, this is what scared everyone so much to begin with. Right? To, to come back to the land of Canaan with all of this grain and to have all of your money still in your sacks. Right? This, this absolutely terrifies everyone. It terrified Jacob. It terrified the sons. Everyone was terrified by this. And so the assumption is that we somehow, this really was a mistake, and, and we are considered to be thieves in the land of Egypt. So if we can go back and we can present double what we gave the first time and come back with the money that was in our sacks, then we should look like we're free and clear, right? We didn't steal this out of necessity. We wouldn't have to steal this. Look, we, we have plenty to pay with. It's just, it was just a simple accounting error. It's a simple transaction error that, that took place. So, so don't hold it against us and, hey, uh, look at our honey, right? This is, this is exactly the way that the showmanship, the salesmanship is, is getting ready to be prepared for, 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 uh, for Jacob's sons here. He sends them with a blessing uh, there in verse 13. May God Almighty grant you compassion in the sight of the man. This is really, this is a prayer that, uh, that, that Jacob is, is praying for his sons, that they will have compassion on him, and that he gets both of his sons back. Right? He wants Benjamin to come back home to him. He's concerned about Benjamin, and he's concerned about Simeon. Right? He does want Simeon back at some point in time. And then in verse 15, we see that the brothers are off. Right, the, the, the adventure begins, as it were. They begin to, to head their way down to, to Egypt. You'll notice the, the order that takes place in verse 15. And, and a lot of commentators have thought that the order here is rather significant. Uh, they take the, the present, they took double the money in their hand, and they took Benjamin. Benjamin is the last item that is, that is mentioned on this list. And many commentators think that this may suggest the reluctance with which uh, Jacob is sending Benjamin down there, right? He's okay with the money. Send the money. He's okay with the present. Send the present. But Benjamin, Benjamin, we waited to the last minute on that one, right? Okay, fine. We'll, we'll send, okay, fine. We'll send Benjamin down with you as well, right? Uh, so this is, this is the, the issue of reconciliation that is, that is at play here, right? Uh, Jacob is a man who is still holding on to his favoritism. He loves those sons of, of, of Rachel. He doesn't mind parting with the money. He doesn't mind parting with the presents that he's sending in the hands of his sons. He maybe doesn't even mind parting with his sons to a certain degree. He keeps sending all of them down every time. But Benjamin, he minds. Joseph, he minded an awful lot. And at this point now, Joseph, Jacob is being brought to the point where his favoritism is being tested. Will he hold on to this idea of favoritism to the point where his family will starve? 
or will he begin to give in on this? And this is where I think you can, you can look at the situation. And while you may give credit to Joseph for, for engineering a good bit of it, I don't think you could, you could give credit to Joseph for all of this. Jo- Joseph could not take credit for, for considering how he was going to break his father of favoritism. I don't think that was in Joseph's mind. I don't think that was in anyone's mind at this point in time. That just is what it is at a certain point. But God is doing something. God is doing something that is required to, to bring reconciliation to this family, to, to allow this family to live. Uh, God is organizing the events and, and pushing them towards where they need to go. Uh, he, is, he is sovereignly orchestrating uh, these events. So reconciliation here, verses 1 through 15. Uh, next we see providence here in verses 16 through, through 25. 16 through 25. Uh, Genesis 43, 16. Uh, When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to his house steward, Bring the men into the house and slay an animal and make ready, for the men are to dine with me at noon. So the man did as Joseph said and brought the men to Joseph's house. Now the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. And they said, It is because of the money that was returned in our sacks the first time that that we are being brought in, that he may seek occasion against us and fall upon us and take us for slaves with our donkeys. So they came near to Joseph's house steward and spoke to him at the entrance of the house and said, O oh my Lord, we indeed came down the first time to buy food. And it came about that when we came to the lodging place that we opened our sacks. Behold, each man's money was in the mouth of his sack, our money in full. So we have brought it back in our hand. We have also brought down other money in our hand to buy food. We do not know who put our money in our sacks. He said, Be at ease. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has given you treasure in your sacks. I had your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. Then the men brought the men into Joseph's house and gave them water. And they washed their feet and gave their donkeys fodder. So they prepared their present for Joseph's coming at noon, for they had heard that they were to eat a meal there. Providence begins to to come into focus again. We've already seen providence a little bit as we talked about reconciliation. There's a strong degree of providence that is taking place all throughout this chapter. Right? Because one of the chief concerns is, is this family going to live or is this family not going to live? Right? Is this family going to have enough grain to eat or are, they, or are they going to starve to death there in the land of Canaan? And we see that the hand of God is providentially moving them in that direction to make sure that they have what they need. Um, as the brothers come back into Egypt, you have to imagine that they are coming in with a certain sense of dread. Right? Uh, they left with the, with the perception they were probably conceived of as criminals. Right? Uh, they left with money in their bags that should have been left in the treasuries of Egypt, and instead they find it in the mouth of all of their sacks. And this, this concerns them greatly. Uh, not only does that concern them, but now they have their brother Benjamin to worry about as well. Right? He's now in their lot. He's, he's in that group with them. And if they're perceived as, as criminals, if they're perceived as thieves, what is Benjamin probably perceived as? He's probably perceived of as, as a thief, right? So if they're not conceived of as spies, they are conceived of as, as thieves. So, so they have problems in either, either which way that they go. So as they enter the land of, of, of Egypt again, as they prepare to, to stand before, before Joseph again, um, they, are, they are doubtless nervous about everything that is getting ready to take place. When they come in to see Joseph, Joseph is again, verse 16, Joseph apparently is the one that is doing all of the business here, right? Joseph is the one that is, that is handling all of these interactions, all of these transactions. When he sees Benjamin in verse 16 with, the, with these men, he knows exactly who it is. Right? He, has, he has no questions, he has no doubts, he knows as soon as he sees this individual after 20 years, that's my brother Benjamin. Right? There's, there's no hesitation. There's not even a recorded uh, introduction that takes place. Right? He just sees it and says, I know who that is. 
That's exactly who I expect to see. All right, and, and, and Joseph then again begins to, to kick things into, into gear here. He commands his steward in verse 16 uh, to make a meal at his house and to have these brothers come with him as well. And this terrifies them even more. This really is hospitality. That really is what is going on here. And this, this is, again, is where you look at the, the silver linings behind all of the events that are taking place. And you start to question, what is it that, that Joseph is up to? What is, he, what is he doing? Everything about it really is very, very gracious. Uh, he has already given them free food. And what is he going to give them here? He's going to give them a huge meal. I mean, this is, this is absolutely fantastic what, he's, what he is getting ready to do for them. But can they perceive it that way? And they can't. And I think this is probably where you say a guilty conscience is probably at play a little bit here, right? When, when they look at the situation, they cannot perceive of it as being kind at all. They cannot see any grace in it at all. All they can worry about here um, in verse, um, end of verse uh, 18 is that he will seek an occasion against us to fall upon us and take us for slaves with our donkeys. That's all they can be concerned about. They're going to take our donkeys. And they're going to take us as slaves. Right? This, this is all they can seemingly think about. This, this, is, this must be what is getting ready to take place. This is a, this is a trap in, in some fashion whatsoever. When from Joseph's perspective, I don't, I don't think you could see it that way at all. Uh, Joseph, Joseph knows who they are. Uh, Joseph knows what is going on. And Joseph knows that he wants to throw, throw, throw a feast for these individuals. Uh, but they, they are unable to see it. Um, I think it is significant that the thing that they fear the most is slavery. Because what is it that they've done to Joseph? They've, they've, put, him, they've put him into slavery. Right? There is, I, to me, there is, a, there is an awful lot of sign of their own conscience that is, that is taking place here at this time. As soon as the events in chapter 42 broke out, uh, what did they tie it to? They tied it to what they did with Joseph. Right? There, is, there is something about that event that has, that has scarred them, and, and rightfully so. There is something about that event that has scarred them and made them so nervous about this one particular fate that could befall them. And it seems to all go back to, uh, to Joseph and what they have done for him. And so, uh, again, you can see, I think, the hand of God moving them in this direction. Right? They, are, they are keyed in this direction. They are thinking in this direction. They are moving in this direction, uh, even when, with events that are, that are seemingly innocent, even with events that don't seem really Related at all, they are they are moving in this one particular direction. Uh, as they get ready to go into the house, there in verse nineteen, uh, they they try to make sure that they are as safe as they possibly could be safe before they enter the house. They talk to the steward and said, "By the way, this is the money that we had from last time." And they they rehearse their little their little story all over again, right? We we found our money in our sacks, and we don't know how it got there, and so here we have our money, right? They've got this this nice little story all rehearsed there, and, and the seemingly their their attempt is to make sure that they get this in the clear before they go into the house, right? Because they're concerned about what's going to happen in the house. Couldn't Joseph have arrested them as soon as they entered before him? He really could have. Joseph could have had them arrested as soon as they crossed the border. I mean, Joseph, Joseph has all of this power at his disposal. Uh, these brothers are paranoid. They are absolutely paranoid at this point in time. Uh, and they're doing everything that they possibly can to make sure that they, are, they feel as safe as they possibly can. This is, this is cleared up before we go into the house because the house is, is the dangerous spot right here, right? So they're, they're trying to make sure that is, that is cleared up. Uh, when you look at the, the answer that the steward gives to them, um, in verse 23, I think it's clear to, to, that the steward is probably giving an answer that Joseph has fed to him, right? He tells them in verse 23, uh, Be at ease, do not be afraid. 
your God and the God of your father has given you treasure in your sacks. I had your money. Uh, I don't think that the steward is probably to be assumed to be a believer at this point in time. I don't think there's any reason why you would suspect that. But Joseph is, isn't he? Joseph understands what is going on here. Joseph is is attuned to the situation. And the statements that he makes, the twofold statement that he makes are both true in both respects, right? God and the God of your father has given you treasure in your sacks. Hasn't God's providential hand arranged all this to take place? He has. Joseph is simply the agent. Right now, we may, we may sit and question exactly why it is that Joseph is doing everything that he's doing, but Joseph ultimately is simply the agent by which God is acting. The money that is in their sacks represents free food that they have received. And who has done that for them? God has done that for them. This is, this is the providence of God on display. They can't see it because they're so consumed with guilt. Uh, they can't see it because they're, they're so paranoid about the way that everything has taken place. But it has been the good hand of God that has given them this to them, right? Joseph is merely the agent. And did Joseph have their money? He did have their money. He gave it right back to them, but he did have their money, right? This is, uh, both of these statements are true here. I'm, I'm, I'm confident that Joseph would have fed these statements to the steward, right? Joseph and the, and the steward are working hand in hand. We'll see this very clearly in chapter 43. You see it again in chapter 44. The steward is, is essentially the right hand of Joseph. If Joseph has a task that he needs for them to, that is sensitive, it needs to be completed, the steward is the one that goes and takes care of it. Um, I'm convinced that it was the steward in chapter 42 who actually put the money uh, back in the sacks because the steward seems to be uh, the man that gets that done and so the steward as soon as these brothers come to the the gates of the house uh, they're paranoid they're worried they rehearse their little story that they've been working on the entire journey from Canaan all the way down here he says it's okay it's all right calm down there's nothing there's nothing to be concerned about here right everything everything is perfectly fine I'm okay you're okay come on in and have a meal right this is this is what you've been called here for and so they do. They receive good hospitality. Look in verse 24, all right? They are received with all the hospitality that you would expect for that day, right? These are not men that are being received back as, as spies. These are not men that are being received back as thieves, right? These are men that are being received back as honored guests. They're getting to, to wash their feet. He's given them water to drink. Uh, he's given uh, their animals uh, food a- a- as well. Right? This, is, this is all the customary hospitality that you would expect of the day. That is, what, uh, that is what Joseph is giving to them as they come and enter this house. Uh, they are getting everything that they could, uh, they could possibly want and everything that they could possibly have here. End of verse 25, we see them still trying to carry out Jacob's orders, right? Jacob sent them with this, uh, this gift, right? These, these gifts of all these items. Uh, verse 25, here they are. They're, they're sitting there. They're, pre- they're presenting everything. They got, they got their bows. They're straightening out. You know how you have Christmas presents and you, and you scrape the scissors along the bow to make it curl. That's what they're doing. They're sitting there making sure that everything looks real good for when they give it to, to Joseph because we've, we've really got to impress him. And so here they are in verse 25, making all of this prepared, thinking that this this is, this is going to be what, what is going to save them uh, from their situation. So the providence of God is on display, right? Uh, Joseph is giving them what they need. Joseph has given them what they need. Joseph has every intention of continuing to give them uh, what they need, right? It is the providence of God on display. They are not getting thrown into jail. Uh, everyone is, is being released. Even in verse uh, 23, I forgot to point it out, uh, Simeon is brought back out. 
Right? That, was, that was one of the conditions. Right? Simeon was that hostage, as it were, in order to ensure that Benjamin would come from the land of Canaan. Simeon is restored. Right? So, so all of the brothers together are standing there. All, everyone, is, everyone is free. Everyone is going to get this meal. Everyone is experiencing this hospitality. Uh, this genuinely is a good, should be a good experience for the brothers, uh, even though they are, they are paranoid from, from everything that has happened so far. As we move into chapter, or into verse 26 down to verse 34 then, we begin to see the, the promise, uh, that, that, the, the promise theme that is, that is present for us here. In verse 26, uh, when Joseph came home, so apparently Joseph had, had other business that he was attending to. He gave the order in verse 16 uh, to prepare this meal, and then Joseph must have been off handling other things. Uh, if Joseph seemingly is handling all the transactions, because every time the brothers show up, Joseph is present, chances are very good that Joseph is doing this with other individuals as well. So individuals who are coming from other countries are also in dealing with, with Joseph. So obviously he's occupied. He's, he's a busy man there. Verse 26 uh, when Joseph came home, they brought it into the house to him, the present which was in their hand, and they bowed to the ground before him. And then he asked them about their welfare and said, Is your father well of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? They said, Our servant, our father is well. He is still alive. They bowed down in homage. As he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, he said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? And he said, May God be gracious to you, my son. Joseph hurried out, for he was deeply stirred over his brother and sought a place to weep, and he entered his chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out, and he controlled himself and said, Serve the meal. So they served him by himself, and they by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves, because the Egyptians could not eat bread with the Hebrews, for that is loathsome to the Egyptians. Now as they were seated before him, the, youngest, the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth, and the men looked at one another in astonishment. And he took portions of them from his own table, but Benjamin's portions was five times as much as any of the others. So they feasted and drank freely with him. Uh, the, narrative, uh, the narrator here in Genesis gives us an awful lot of detail about uh, this interaction that takes place, this, this meal that is, that is there to, to take place. Uh, the first thing that we see after Joseph comes back is Joseph again begins uh, that, that inquisition that he has been on the entire time. Uh, remember when the brothers were reciting the, the questions that were being asked by Joseph, they mentioned the questions that he keeps asking, right? Is your father still alive, and what about your younger brother? And it's curious that when you, as soon as you get into, into verse 27, again, what is he asking about? Is your father still alive, and what's this going on about your brother? If I was these boys, and this man keep asking those same questions over and over again, I really would start to wonder, wouldn't you? Like, like wouldn't you think that you should have thought something about that, uh, that he keeps asking these two questions? What, what, is, his, what is his problem uh, with these two particular questions, right? But he asks them again. Uh, they, he gives them time to give an answer um, in verse 27 about the father, right? Is he still alive, right? And they said in verse 28, your servant or father is alive. He is still, he is still alive, right? Everything, everything is good with him. He gives them time to answer that question. Verse 29, though, he lifted up his eyes and he saw his, his brother Benjamin, his mother's son. He said, is this your younger brother of whom you spoke to me? And he said, may God be gracious to you, my son. Did he wait for the answer? He did not. Because why? He knows who this guy is, right? There, there's not a doubt in Joseph's mind who this brother is. Uh, Joseph is really tipping his hand in terms of what he knows and what he does not know there. And the brother still cannot see this. Right? He's still stuck on these same two questions over and over again. It's been this way since the very beginning. And here, he doesn't even bother to let them answer. Oh yeah, that must be your younger brother. God bless you. 
<laughs> right? He knows exactly who this is. If these boys had had, any, had had any wits about them, if they could have calmed down for just a minute from the paranoia that they were suffering from, they could have seen very clearly this guy knows an awful lot about what's going on here. Right? He really understands what's going on. But they, they still cannot see this. Right? Joseph is still operating from this position of superiority, and they are still operating in a situation where they are, they are struggling. When we think about this situation that Joseph finds himself in now, you have to wonder what's going on in Joseph's mind. When we looked in chapter 42 and we see the brothers appear to, 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 to Joseph for the first time, we, re, we recall there that Joseph is reminded about his dream. Right? He remembers that dream he had when he was 17 years old about the, the stars bowing down to him, about these, these sheaves of wheat bowing down to him. He, he, his mind is immediately going back to that. When that happened, there were only 10 brothers that were present. Now he has 11 brothers present. And I have to wonder, what is it that Joseph is thinking now, right? Because we're slowly getting closer and closer to the point where that dream is getting fulfilled. Um, I don't know, again, I don't know, I don't know what Joseph's expectations were in chapter 42. I don't know what he was thinking with that. I don't know what his expectations are in chapter 43. But if I am Joseph and we keep incrementing the count on the number of people that are bowing down to me, it seems to me that we are getting very close to the point where that dream is finally going to be fulfilled. And this is, one of the, this is where you see that, that idea of promise that is coming through this thread. Uh, part of the promise is coming to these boys, right? Are we going to keep these children alive? What is going to happen to this family as a whole? But a good bit of this comes back to Joseph. Joseph has had dreams. Joseph has had promises that were made to him. And Joseph is still waiting for those to come true. It's been decades since that dream has come, has come to pass. It's been two more years probably since the last time those brothers have shown up. And still, Joseph is waiting for it. Still, Joseph is waiting to see, is this dream going to be fulfilled or will it not be fulfilled? You may even wonder Joseph's questions about his father's well-being may be just as much to do with that promise as it is with anything else, right? If, if the promise was made that the sun and the moon as well as the stars were bowing down, would it, what has to be true? Father has to be alive. Someone's got to be alive for this to take place. And so there could be, there might even be doubts in Joseph's mind that, are, that he is struggling with here as to what exactly is going to take place and when is this going to take place. But surely as Joseph is seeing 11 brothers now standing in front of him, Joseph must be coming to the conclusion, we're getting close, right? Things, things must be moving to, to where we, we think they're going to be. After, they, after all the, the introductions are, are done, um, we see that, that Joseph sees Benjamin for the first time. Uh, you'll notice there that he, he lifts up his eyes at verse 29. Uh, the lifting up his eyes is, is required because all these brothers are bowed down to him and, and Joseph is looking down. Then his, his gaze kind of goes up to, to Benjamin. Uh, we notice again that, that Joseph is very sensitive to this. Uh, this the sight of Benjamin is, is more than, than Joseph could possibly bear. This is the second time that we have seen Joseph just absolutely lose it uh, in, in our sight. And the narrator has been very clear about that. And again, we, we question what Joseph is doing. We question why Joseph is doing uh, what he's doing. Uh, but it is clear to me that there are good intentions that are behind Joseph on this. Joseph is sensitive to these things. Joseph is tender uh, to the needs of his brother. Joseph is tender to seeing his own brother uh, in, in the flesh again. And this, this causes him to lose it. He's able to, to keep some kind of a, a veneer uh, that, that, is, that is going on here. Uh, he's able to, to look stern to these, these men and be able to, to terrify them, really, is what he's doing. Uh, but then he's able to break away to some private room and just lose it, right? Just absolutely lose it. Once he gets himself controlled again, he comes back into the room. 
and says, all right, we're going we're gonna to eat here. And then we get a very elaborate description of exactly what is, what is taking place here. Uh, Joseph is doing a couple different things. Uh, first off, we see that there is a, a placement that is, that is in order. Uh, we see that there are three groups of individuals who are, who are seated present there. Uh, first off, we see um, in verse 32, So they served him by himself, and them by themselves, being the, being the brothers, and the Egyptians eating by themselves. So there's a, there's a, there's a division that is taking place in this, in this meal hall as they, as they eat. Uh, there's a division that takes place. The first division is Joseph. And Joseph is seated by himself. Uh, he's eating by himself. And this probably is due to his position, right? He really, he's, he's so far above everyone else at this point in time. No one can, no one can eat with him, right? He's, uh, he's the number two in the land and he's able to sit by himself. The division that takes place between the Hebrews and the Egyptians is far more interesting because that's required to take place because of the way the Egyptians look at things. Uh, The Egyptians, you'll notice there in verse uh, 32, could not eat with the Hebrews, for that is loathsome uh, to the to the Egyptians. Okay, they can't they can't stand being even present with the Hebrews at a certain point in time, even though their number two is in fact a Hebrew. They just they just don't know the fact, right? Uh, there's a couple different times that this, this will show up. If you turn over to chapter 46 of Genesis, chapter 46, this gets expressed in, in two different ways. So there's, there's two different things that are, that are going on here. Genesis chapter 46, verse 34, is the first description that we get of why this is loathsome. Why, why do these two groups have to eat separate? Uh, verse 34, uh, Joseph is talking, this is, this, we're shooting ahead a little bit as Joseph is, is reconciling and getting everyone moved in the place. Uh, but Joseph is coaching the brothers in verse 34, You shall say, Your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth, even until now, both we and our fathers, that you may live in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is loathsome to the Egyptians. Okay, so part of the problem in chapter 43, part of the reason why the Egyptians and the Hebrews cannot spend any time together, cannot eat together, is because the Egyptians have a very low view of shepherds, right? They do not like shepherds at all. Shepherds are are loathsome to them. They do not like them at all. The second uh, example that comes out is over in Exodus chapter 8. Turn over a few more pages with me. Exodus chapter 8. Exodus chapter 8, we're now, we're now into the, the ten plagues of Egypt. This is uh, Moses uh, talking to, uh, to Pharaoh. Exodus chapter 8 and verse 26. Uh, in verse 25, uh, Pharaoh is starting to relent a little bit. He says, you know, go sacrifice, but to do it within the land. Don't, don't leave the land, but you can stay in the land and you can sacrifice. Moses protests in verse 26. Moses said, it is not right to do so, for we will sacrifice to the Lord our God with what is an abomination to the Egyptians? If we sacrifice what is an abomination to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not then stone us? So the, the two problems are, number one, the Egyptians don't like shepherds. The second problem is the Egyptians don't seem to like animal sacrifices in some, in some capacity, particularly either livestock or, or, or and the, the likelihood is, is, the, is the, the cattle. The cattle is probably what, what the Egyptians don't like. Egyptians worship cattle in, in certain points. Uh, you remember the, the, the bull that they construct as they're coming out of the land of Egypt? That's the apis bull cult that they are partaking in. Uh, bulls were worshipped. Animals were like that were, were worshipped. And the Egyptians find that kind of practice abominable. Right? And so this is what's feeding into verse chapter 43. Right? Why, why do we have to have the Egyptians and the Hebrews separate? Why can they not eat together? Well, it's because of who these very people are. Right? These are individuals who raise livestock. 
As soon as they find that out, they say, Ugh, we, don't, we don't want to sit with you. We don't want to talk to you. And if they know anything about their worship practices, they know we don't want to talk with you either, right? We don't, we don't want to, to deal with you. And while that seems just purely cultural, right, and really it is, right, this is purely a cultural phenomenon that we're looking at here, right, the Egyptians do not like shepherds, the Egyptians do not like people who offer animal sacrifices, probably particularly cattle, while that seems to be something that is, that is particularly just a cultural situation that, that we're observing here, the reality is there's a little bit more that is, that is going on here. Right, there, there's a promise that is at stake, and you're starting to see a reason why this promise might have been made. If you go back to Genesis chapter 15 with me, Genesis chapter 15, uh, there was a promise that was made, and we've seen no movement on it whatsoever. But in chapter 43, we start to get the first glimpse of what is actually taking place there. Genesis chapter 15, this was God talking to Abraham, making his, his covenant with Abraham. And in verse 13, after the, the deep sleep falls upon Abraham, the, the, the terror and the great darkness of verse 12, In chapter 15, verse 13, God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. It was promised to Abraham that his descendants would go into a land and live there for 400 years. God doesn't say what land that is. God doesn't, God doesn't need to say, and Abraham, what does Abraham care? Abraham doesn't know anything that's going on in, in 400 years from now. Right? There is a breakdown in what is taking place here. But as we start to lay the groundwork in chapter 43, and as we continue moving through Genesis, it becomes very clear the land that God is talking about here in Genesis 15 is Egypt. Right? This, is what, this is what ultimately results in what we see in Exodus as we watch the children of Israel leaving the land of Egypt after 400 years. God delivering them out, God breaking the Egyptians as he sends them on their way, and, and them plundering the Egyptians as they, as they leave that land. But up until this point, we have no idea where that is going to be. And we may wonder to ourselves at some point, why would God take the children of Israel and drop them down in Egypt anyway? Why not send them to Babylon? Why not send them up to to the land where Assyria will be? Why not send them anywhere else? And I think when you look at Genesis chapter 43 and you see this stark cultural division that must take place between the Egyptians and the Hebrews, I think you start to see the reason why God wants to do that. This is probably the safest place that God could drop them off. This is the place where the Egyptians and the Hebrews, where they are least likely to mingle because they can't, because they detest each other. Think back to what we've seen already with Judah. Who does, who does Judah begin consorting with almost immediately? Canaanites, people of the land. Who is, who is Judah marrying? He's marrying Canaanite women, right? Uh, two, two of them. Eventually, Tamar is kind of a bright spot in that whole situation. Uh, but on the whole, this is a very dangerous situation. Judah has shown how easy it is for the children of Israel, the Hebrews, to integrate in with the people of Canaan. If God had let them stay in Canaan for 400 years... Would they look like they look in the land of, when you get to the book of Exodus? And I think the answer is no. There's, there's no way that they could. But if you send them down to a people that detest them, who will not mingle with them, right, who don't want anything to do with them because they are loathsome, because they are shepherds and because of what they sacrifice, what can the children of Israel do while they're down there? They can continue to grow. They can do what they need to do, they can prosper, they can thrive, and they are, they are unaffected by anyone around them because they don't want to touch them. 
they're essentially cocooned down there in the land of Egypt, which is essentially what, what Joseph is arguing for there when we looked in, in chapter 46, right? Getting them into a spot where they can just grow and just live there, and they can be left alone because no one wants to deal with them. No one wants to touch them. It's perfect spot for them. What you see in chapter 43 is not only God's promise to, to Joseph that is slowly being revealed, right? We've gone from 10, 10 brothers bowing before him to 11 brothers. But we're also beginning to watch God beginning to, to work out what he promised to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 15. I'm sending your, 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 your descendants, your, your seed down to a land where they're going to live for 400 years. And it's not just that they're going to live and, and scrape by for 400 years. They're actually going to do well for 400 years because I'm sending to them a spot that is perfect for them. I'm sending them to a spot where they don't have to worry about intermingling with the people of the land, where they will, they will lose who they are, where they will be absorbed and their identity will be lost. I'm sending them to a place where they can grow, where they can thrive, where they will be left alone to grow for 400 years. That is what God is doing, and he's beginning to work that out in Joseph's life. He's beginning to work out that promise that was made in Genesis chapter 15, right? It's slow. It's hard to, it's hard to watch there, but it becomes more and more obvious that this is the purpose that God is, part of the purpose that God is raising up Joseph for throughout the course of, this, uh, throughout the course of the rest of this book, not only to keep the brothers alive, but to allow the children of Israel to thrive and to become uh, what they need to become by the time you get them to the, to the book of Exodus. So there is, there is promises that, that are taking place here. God has not forgotten the promise that he has made to Joseph, and he has not forgotten the promise that he is making to Abraham. Both of them will be taken care of in good time. Going back to, to going back to the meal here, right? So we have the, the three groups of, of individuals. Uh, Joseph is everyone is, is split apart. Verse 30, 33, uh, we see that Joseph again tips his hand on, on what is going on and what he knows. You look in verse 33, and, and the Hebrews who are, who are sitting apart by themselves, all these brothers are ordered in a very particular manner, right? Uh, they are ordered from youngest to oldest. Now again, how does this man know this? Right? How, does he, how is he able to just look at the lineup and say, oh, oldest to youngest? Now, some people are very good at guessing ages, uh, but this goes a little bit, this, this is a little bit incredulous, isn't it? It's hard to imagine. Remember, a lot of these brothers, they're all being born in a very, very short period of time with, with four different women that are involved, right? It's, it's not, you're not going to, you're going to lack some of the very clear two and three year rule that you may observe sometimes, right? Uh, there, this, is a, this is a difficult situation for anyone to arrange unless you know these brothers intimately. And Joseph does know these brothers intimately. He arranges them all, and they sit there in verse 33 in astonishment. In astonishment. How could this happen? How could this be taking place? On top of that, verse 34, Benjamin's portions are five times greater than everyone else. Again, what is it with this guy and the youngest brother? <laughs> I mean, seriously. All he asks about is our father and our youngest brother, and when our youngest brother shows up, he showers him with gifts. Five times more than anyone else. Should you not be thinking something about that? You really ought to, right? So, so Joseph really is, is tipping their hand. Uh, end of verse 34, they feasted and drank freely with him. Uh, this, is a, this is a time of great rejoicing for these, for these brothers. Now, I don't know how much they were able to enjoy themselves fully, but based on their description, they went pretty far, right? Uh, this is describing individuals who have eaten as much as they possibly could. They have drinking as much as they possibly could. Uh, this, is a, this, is a, this is a big night that they are having here, and Joseph has provided this for his brothers as a sign of, of who he is, right? As a sign of what he is capable and, and the resources that he has available to him. 
This will lead up into chapter 44, and we'll look at this next week. But all of this lays into, into, uh, into um, all this begins to lay the groundwork for chapter 44, right? The brothers are coming off of a night that is, uh, that is pretty wild. They're coming off of a night that is, uh, that is pretty satisfying by all due respects. Puts them at a position of ease, uh, which I think will make chapter 44 all the more shocking as they find themselves shocked again by finding themselves in the same spot they found themselves earlier. But all of this is simply seeing the hand of God. You cannot give Joseph credit for all of this. Joseph is doing some clever work. Joseph is, is doing some interesting work as he, as he tips his hand in some way, as he, as he provides for his brothers. But you cannot move their hearts the way that God is moving their hearts. Right? Joseph is incapable of that. You see the hand of God that is a bit work. You see his hand being taken place with the restoration that is causing Jacob to come to a point where he has to, to lose, to tighten his grip on that favoritism a little bit. Uh, you see the, the hand of God that is on display in the providence that is working in the, in the, in the, in the lives of these uh, brothers and, and, and of Joseph himself. God is ordering these events. And you see the hand of God at work in the promise that has taken place. Right? God is keeping his promises, promises that he made to, Jake, to Joseph, promises that he has made to Abraham. God is bringing those things to pass. What you see in chapter 43 is the sovereignty of God on display. He is moving individuals around as he sees fit. He is moving nations around as he sees fit. And you can't take credit for that from a human perspective. Joseph is nothing more than the agent. He's a clever agent. He's an active agent. But he's nothing more than an agent. What you see in 43 is a sovereign hand of God accomplishing his, his pleasures, accomplishing his purposes in the lives of these individuals. And for that, we give him thanks, right? Because we see the exact same in our own life. As we watch our own situations move around, as we watch people move in and out, as we watch events around us, we understand that what we are seeing is the sovereign hand of God, just as you see it here in chapter 43. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for what we see of you here in these chapters. Uh, Father, these are, uh, these are really quite remarkable events that are taking place. Father, we're looking at, at big national events that you are laying the groundwork for uh, as we think about what will happen not only to Egypt, uh, but what will happen to Israel uh, over the next 400 years, what will happen to the land of Canaan after 400 years. Father, you are, uh, you are moving big events in order to accomplish your will. But we also see it taking place in the lives of these individuals. Father, hearts that, that need to be changed, thinking that needs to be changed, fears that need to be uh, removed, guilt that, that needs to be removed, uh, hurt that needs, to be, uh, that needs to be remedied, Father. Uh, you are accomplishing all of that, and you're doing all of it at the same time. Uh, Father, we can't help but marvel at that kind of wisdom. We can't help but marvel at that kind of power. We can't help but marvel at that kind of omniscience that is, that is able to operate both at that, that such a large level and such a small level at the exact same time. Father, we can't do that. We get either lost in the details or we get lost in the big picture. We, we cannot operate at both levels at the same time effectively, but you can because you are other and because you are holy. And so, Father, we come this morning and, and, we, and we, we adore you. We worship you. We praise you for who you are. And, Father, we take comfort in our own lives uh, knowing that you, being that kind of a God, are doing that for us as well. And so we thank you this morning for, for doing that. And I pray, Lord, that we rest in you, uh, Father, as we watch your good hand at work here in the life of, of Joseph and his brothers, that we rest in you, uh, Father, knowing that the same is true of us as, as your children. So give us grace, Father, to think about these things and, and to bring them home for us to, to contemplate on. Jesus, name I pray. Amen.